0: There was a precocious two-and-a-half-year-old girl, and uh, someone had given her a little tea set as a gift, and it was one of her favorite toys. Grandpa was in the living room engrossed in uh, reading the uh, paper when she brought him a little cup of tea. It It was just water. And after several cups of tea and lots of praise for such yummy tea, Grandma came home Well, Grandpa made her wait in the living room to watch his granddaughter bring him a cup of tea because it was just the cutest thing. Grandma waited, and sure enough, here she came down the hall with a cup of tea for Grandpa, and she watched him drink it all up. And then she said, as only a grandma would know, did it ever occur to you that the only place she can reach to get water is the toilet? There are some endings you would just prefer not knowing. And that's true of the story ending that we're going to look at today. We've gone back in biblical history to consider the life of a man by the name of Asa. He's king over the two southern tribes called Judah. And uh, we're drawing some principles out of his life and his reign that we can apply in our own faith walk. Last week we saw that as he came to the throne, peace existed in the land. So if you want to find your way to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 14, if you've got your Bible or your personal device with you, or if you grab a seat back Bible, page 466, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. I think one of the hints we have in the text for what is going on with Asa and also with the nation is, We see in chapter 14, verse 2, where it says, And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. During this time of peace, Asa turned the hearts of the people towards God. He did that as their leader. And the principle that we drew out for our own application is that we must diligently maintain a cutting edge in our faith life, especially in times of peace. That's what Asa did. And when he faced his first military crisis, he drew up the army to meet the foe, and then he prayed, and he acknowledged God's power and and their weakness. Look at verse 11 of chapter 14. Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come out against this multitude." So Asa expressed his trust in God's ability to deliver, and he acknowledged God's role and their role. Asa still had to go out and fight, but it was God who would be the one who would fight for them and give them the victory. He put his life and that of the nation into God's hands, and God gave him a great victory. But the principle that we drew out of this experience was this. God delights in manifesting his power through our weakness. And we see that in our own lives as we recognize how we just aren't strong enough to face life's challenges. And God brings his strength. Now we go on this morning to a third application principle. And it's this. We must daringly take courage from God's word. Watch as I start reading in Second Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded." It's significant to me that God's word came to Asa after his acknowledgement of trust and their need for God's deliverance. Then there's this obedient action that follows. and, And it's then that God sends word to Asa, words of encouragement, words of exhortation. I think God spoke because Asa was receptive. There was something about Asa that he was ready to hear. I think God speaks when we're receptive. And the question for us really is, do we we employ our spiritual antenna? Are are we listening? Are we receptive? So what does it mean about that? One of my favorite authors, you've heard me many times talk about him, is A.W. Tozier, writing over a half century ago, uh, in, to me, what is probably his most profound book spiritually, it's entitled The Pursuit of God. But listen to what he writes about spiritual receptivity. He concludes this particular chapter on the universal presence with this. He says, What God and his sovereignty may yet do on a worldwide scale, I do not claim to know. But what he will do for the plain man or woman who seeks his face, I believe I do know and can tell others. Let any man turn to God in earnest. Let him begin to exercise himself under godliness. Let him seek to develop his powers of spiritual receptivity by trust and obedience and humility, and the results will exceed anything he may have hoped in his leaner and weaker days. Anyone who by repentance and a sincere return to God will break themselves out of the mold in which they've been held, And we'll go to the Bible itself for spiritual standards. We'll be delighted in what one finds there. Let me say it again. The universal presence is a fact. God is here. The whole universe is alive with his life. And he's no strange or foreign God, but the familiar Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose love has for these thousands of years enfolded the sinful race of men. And always he's trying to get our attention to reveal himself to us, to communicate with us. We have within us the ability to know him if we will but respond to his overtures. And this we call pursuing God. We will know him increasing, in increasing degree as our receptivity becomes more perfect by faith and love and practice. Well, what's God's message to Asa? It's be strong. Take courage. Interesting paradox, isn't it? Be strong, be weak. Be strong, be weak. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. And He's talking there about the strength of God in his experience. He puts it all in his proper context when in Ephesians 6, he writes, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because as long as I think I can do it myself, I have no need of God. He won't bother me or you. Look at Asa's response to God's word. I'm back in Second Chronicles 15, verse 8. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim, And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel, that is from the northern tribes, when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered in Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Oh, just amazing. Verse 17, the high places. Well, it verse 16, the Asa cut down the images. He crushed it, burned it in the brook Kidron. The high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. Asa acted on the word of God. Faith necessitates action. It's required of that. Do you realize how risky it is every time you open up this book? Every time you come to church? Anytime God speaks to your heart and to your mind, he expects obedience. He requires obedience. Now listen, God will never hold you accountable for what you don't know. There's not a verse that you'll find that said you, He won't hold you accountable. The problem is, I know too much. And so do most of you. That's what God will hold us accountable. So often in our experience, there's this breakdown at the point between faith and action. Sometimes it's caused by fear. Sometimes it's caused by lack of faith and trust. Sometimes it's by rationalization. But God's Word calls for obedience. Now, fortunately, God's word also supplies courage, and that's what we see in Asa's life. It's also something we learn from another Old Testament man, Joshua. If you recall, he takes over the reins of leadership from Moses. He's ready to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And here's what God says to him. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. and Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's a scary world out there. It was a scary world for Joshua. It was a scary world for Asa. It's a scary world for us. And we need God's word to encourage us to act on what we know and what he wants us to do. Well, the result of Asa's daring courage is in verse 19. There was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. God blessed the entire nation, which he had promised, to the nation of Israel, what he would do. And so there's this peace because of Asa's obedient action. Oh, my goodness, if only the record of Asa's life ended here. His life would be one worthy of imitating. It would be something we would want to emulate. We would want him to be our example for our lives. But sadly and unfortunately, his life end will become one to avoid. And as the biblical record continues with Asa's experience, we draw out another application. It's this, beware of the deceitful seduction of prosperity. Let's look at the text, chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel went up against Judah and built Ramas that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa king of Judah. And then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord in the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad king of Syria who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ejon, Dan, Ebel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and his timber with which Basha had been building and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. This is the second recorded military crisis in the reign of Asa. The king of Israel from the north comes up against him and all of his army arrayed against the army of Judah. And what Asa does is he goes to the house of the Lord and he takes the silver and the gold, all the vessels and the utensils that were there, and he brings them out and he uses them to buy a treaty with the king of Syria. This causes the king of Israel to withdraw and not war against Judah. But what a difference there is between Asa's first military crisis recorded in chapter 14 and his second recorded in chapter 16. In the first, Asa asked of the Lord. In the second, Asa took from the Lord. In the first, Asa sought help from the Lord. In the second, Asa sought help from another man. What happened to Asa? i tell you what I think. I think he grew complacent. He found that life moved along just fine without God's help. In fact, faith may have grown so stale that when confronted with the crisis, there's no indication that he even sought the Lord. There's no indication at all that he sought the priest's insight into what was going on. The simple fact is prosperity breeds complacency. God was concerned about Israel when they finally went into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you read the story where the warning comes from God to the people. Listen, watch out. When you get into the land, you're going to find that it was everything that I promised that it would be a land flowing with milk and honey, filled with silver and gold. And then he says, listen, when all of this multiplies, when your herds and your flocks multiply, when your gold and your silver multiplies, watch out, beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. And you say in your heart, my power and the strength of my might has gained this wealth. And it's exactly what happened to Israel. I think it's exactly what happened here. There's always a danger nationally. Alexander Frazier Teitler lived at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th. He died in 1813. But he wrote a book titled The Decline and Fall of the Athenian Republic. Listen to his perspective. This is being articulated even before the American experiment had been tested. Here's what he wrote. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. And from that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by dictatorship. 1800s, early 1800s, he's writing now. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependence back into bondage. It is sad and scary where our wonderful country is on that scale today. The 18th century Puritan Cotton Mather once said piety gave birth to prosperity and now the child has devoured its mother. He even saw it then. But there's always a danger But it isn't just nationally, it's also individually, personally. William Wilberforce was a 19th century British parliamentarian, a reformer. He's really the driving force behind eliminating the slave trade in in Great Britain. Um, But he wrote this. When religion is in a state of quiet and prosperity, the soldiers of the church militant will then tend to forget they are at war. Their ardor slackens and their zeal languishes. John Owen has made an apt comparison. Religion in a state of prosperity is like a colony that is long settled in a strange country. It is gradually assimilated in features, demeanor, and language to the native inhabitants until at length every vestige of its distinctiveness has died away. That's the risk. That's the challenge the church in America is facing today. It's what faced Asa and Judah. And so once again, God sends word to Asa. Go to the text again. Chapter 16, starting at verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Do you see what Hanani is saying? He's saying, listen, God wanted to do a great work for you. But he could not and he would not because you did not trust him. I wonder when God reviews my life with me if I will see how many times God wanted to do a great thing, maybe great progress in ministry or in my personal life, but he could not or would not because I would not trust him. And that's what happened to Asa because he just got complacent. Asa's mistake will cause problems. In fact, in chapter 18, Israel is back warring against Judah. Asa's self-reliance bought him some time, but that's all. But don't you wonder what Asa's thinking at this time? Is he maybe thinking, wow, you know, what a great strategist I am. I I don't need God. I mean, I, I made my own deal. The art of a deal. Did I... Piece of cake. Who needs God? Well, this experience leads us to another application principle, and it's this graciously and responsively receive the discipline of the Lord. Because the text is going to go on to tell us that God takes Asa to the woodshed, and he really gives it to him. But look at Asa's response, verse 10, chapter 16, verse 10. Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison. For he was in a rage against him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. You know, it's killed a messenger time. And there's no repentance on Asa's part. Instead, he stiffens his resolve to go it alone. He doesn't need God. And so I have to ask you and me how do we respond to the reprovi- reproving voice of God in our life? Is it with humility? And with repentance, or is it with rationalization, indifference, uh, even antagonism? Because what's the danger of not responding when the Lord disciplines us, when when he when he brings to our mind the sins that we need to confess and get right? What happens? We develop a hardened heart, a calloused heart, and after a while, it becomes harder and harder to hear the voice of God. I don't think you lose your salvation. But I do believe that you're out of fellowship with God and you're not enjoying all that he has for you. And he may well discipline us. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're one of his kids, if you're his child, and, you're not, and God is bringing conviction in your heart about sin and you don't deal, he's going to spank you. Now that may take a lot of forms. It may just simply allowing to happen the natural consequences of your decisions. Or maybe that restlessness in your heart and your mind to know that things are not right. But God will spank you. That's because He loves you, because He wants you in fellowship with Him. Well, the Bible records, and I guess this is another one of those evidences of why, to me, the Bible is so real and inspired, is because it doesn't try to sugarcoat anything. Here's the rest of the story. We pick it up in verse 11. The acts of Asaph from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 29th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices, prepared by the perfumer's art and they made a very great fire in his honor. Even to the end, here he is. He's unrepentant, does not seek help from the Lord. What a tragic end. Here's our final application principle. Don't think it couldn't happen to you. To me, if there's an overarching lesson from Asa's life, it's this, no one is immune. Look how Asa started 14, verse 2, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Chapter 15, verse 8, as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land. 15, 18, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days up to the time that it records at that moment. The NIV reads, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord. The Apostle Paul says it Well, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. History, past and current, is littered with the lives of those who started strong, but who failed down the stretch. Chuck Swindoll relates this story in his book, Simple Faith. I want to read it to you. Robert Robinson was born in England more than 200 years ago. When he was just a boy, his father died and his widowed mother sent him to London to learn the trade of barbering. In that great city, Robert came under the persuasive influence of a powerful man of God, the great Methodist revivalist George Whitfield. Robert was soundly converted and felt a call to ministry. He began at once to study for a lifetime of serving Christ. At 25, Robert Robinson was called to pastor a church in Cambridge, where he became very successful. But the popularity was more than the young minister could handle. It led to the beginning of a lapse in his life of faith. Ultimately, he fell into carnality, another tragic victim of sin's foul bondage. As the years passed, he faded from the scene, and few even remembered his earlier years of devotion to Christ. Years later, Robinson was making a trip by stagecoach and happened to sit next to a woman who was reading a book with obvious pleasure. She seemed to be especially interested in one page of the volume, returning to it again and again. Finally, she turned to Robinson, a complete stranger to her, and held the page toward him. Pointing to the hymn she'd been reading there, she asked what he thought of it. Robinson looked at the first few lines, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. He read no further. Turning his head, he endeavored to engage the lady's attention on the passing landscape, but she was not to be denied. Pressing her point, she told him of the benefit she'd received from the words of that hymn and expressed her admiration for its message. Overcome with emotion, Robinson burst into tears. Madam, he said, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Robert Robinson was now many years older and light years removed from his earlier commitment to Christ. How ironic that at the end of the hymn he had seemed to prophesy his own downward course. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander. That's precisely what he did. Robert Robinson died shortly thereafter at the young age of 55. He'd left the God he once loved and had become a wicked old man. That's our challenge, folks. Finish the race Why do Billy Graham and Bill Bright, just to name two, occupy such a place of of respect and admiration, even when both are gone? I think it is because they maintained that faithful commitment to Christ that they began with at their conversion, and it took them to the end. They stayed strong across the finish line. At the end of his life, Paul would write, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. The question really isn't, how did you begin? It's how will you finish? Will you finish strong across the finish line? You can, by the grace of God. So what's it going to take for you to finish strong? Let's go back over. First is to diligently maintain a cutting edge in your faith life. Stay connected to God. Spend time in His Word. Can I, can I, I have to make a, a comment because I was reminded of thinking of watching this video. Some of you identify with that mother in the video that we watched earlier, don't you? Listen, it isn't, you know, God knows the circumstances of your life. Sometimes now people like me up here on a stage want to go put you all under guilt because you're not spending an hour every morning in Bible study and prayer. You may not be able to, but you know what? Grab what time you can. Maybe it's like she did, you just grab a phrase and it'll stick with you during the course of the day. So live under grace, but get into the word, get the word into you and just allow God to use that into your life. Cultivate a sense of God's presence with you throughout the day. The second principle is find God's power sufficient in your weakness. Be honest with God when you feel powerless, when you feel that you have no resources to face life's challenges. And choose then to rely on God, not on yourself. Ask him to display his power through you. Third, take courage from God's word. Hide his word in your heart. When you read that little phrase, that just grabs you. Keep it going through your mind during the course of the day. Memorize more scripture if you can. But it just allows God to bring his word back into our conscious mind so that we can think on these things, figure out how they apply to us. Cultivate that spiritual receptivity that Tozer talked about so that your antenna is up and you can hear when God speaks to you from his word. And then guard yourself against the seduction of prosperity. Here's some suggestions. Hold the blessings of God loosely, not with a tight fist. Um, Be generous. Give to others. Give give to God and and the purposes of his church, but but be a generous person. It's one of the greatest antidotes to, to holding on tightly. Be willing to take some risks for God with your time, your talent, your treasure. That's a great way so that you're not held captive by the things of this earth. Here's a big one. Find contentment in what you have, not in what you don't have. Learn to say, God, I'm sufficient. You've blessed me with this and I will enjoy it and I will use it for your glory. But I want this attitude of gratitude to grow in my life. Fifth, accept the discipline of the Lord. When God, the your indwelling spirit, points out a sin, an attitude, action, words, whatever it might be, be quick to say, God, you're right, that's wrong, and I, and I repent of that, uh, and, I, and I invite you to control my life, work through my life. And lastly, never assume that you're immune from failure. From the words of Micah the prophet, what does God require of you? To do justice? To love kindness? and to walk humbly or circumspectly with your God. To me, in a word, never stop trusting. Never stop trusting. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would help us to finish strong. Thank you that your spirit lives in us as your children, and by his power in us and by your saving grace, Lord, may we run the race, as Paul said, and finish the race strong. Help us, Lord, to face those things in our life that derail us uh, and want to keep us from crossing that finish line strong. And Lord, as it have to be your strength and your power. May we rely on you. And so, God, we entrust our lives to you this week for all that we encounter, no surprises to you. And so would you, God, be at work in us for your sake and for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.